0: That's page 257, or the Blue Bibles 303. We'll read verses 1 to 16. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past... When Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be my shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah, seven years and six months. Then at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel, and Judah, 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messages to David, and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. And David knew that the king had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibha, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphelet. These are God's words to us. Well, do please keep those uh, open in front of you. Now, last Sunday morning uh, with Remembrance uh, Sunday was one of those days that that God reminds us of what life could be like, doesn't he? Shelling, overhead, fear, air raid sirens, uh, grief, bitterness. And we know it has been like that. We know there has been bitter fighting. For for some of us, a distant memory of our grandparents. For others of us, it's been a very recent reality. But, But war has not only been out there, but it's been part of our history as a church. 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel has been telling us of God's people at war. The north, loyal to Saul, fighting the south, Loyal to David, you know. We've we've looked over Israel over the last few months and thought they do look a lot more like the world than what God's people should be like. We know that there should be something different about God's people. We know there should be peace. And this morning we're going to see how God is changing us. How God is beginning to heal the wounds, to restore his people. Why? So that we start to shine like stars in the world. Because we do know there's something different about God's people, don't we? We know as we come together with our church family, God has brought something good into our lives. There's a pull, there's a community, and a knowing and being known, a smile when you're used to a scowl. perhaps some of you found it hard to to catch the vision of church. You you come along, you slip away quickly at the end of the service, but you you know there's something more here. That's why you're here this morning. You know God is bringing good to you. But how? How is he doing that? How is he taking us from a, a people of war to a people of peace? Well, it's not as we'd necessarily expect. The surprising answer is that it's through a king. A shepherd king. Verse 12 is a a kind of key that unlocks this passage. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Do you notice? God has given them a king for their sake. God is bringing good to them, blessing them, bringing peace and flourishing. How? By giving them David. Giving them a king. Now, for, for some of us who've been in the Christian world a, a while, this might sound pretty ordinary. A king, yeah, sure, we, we know that. But actually, in normal life, we don't like to think that good comes through a single person. Now, maybe wrong here, but from the outside, it feels like uh, American culture can put a bit more weight on a single person, a, a single ruler to bring salvation. You know, uh, Barack Obama was famously put on the front page of, of Time magazine with that tagline, Hope. Uh, uh, Trump has, has even been linked to the prophecy of Isaiah. We won't get into that of uh, the government on his shoulders. But, but here in Scotland, in Britain, not so much. We're, we're, a, bit, we're a bit more cynical, I, I think, really. We, we expect to be let down. Uh, to be failed. But but as we're going to see, the problem actually isn't the idea of having a single person to bring peace and flourishing. It's actually, it's the person people choose. God will bring peace, not through a contemporary political figure, but through the one he has exalted. Now here in 2 Samuel, it's all centered on David. It's about what God does through him. God establishes him for the good of his people. But the Bible shows us as we look at David, God is giving us a glimpse of a better king, of Jesus himself. Now, Jesus comes as the son of David, the the one in David's line who will truly have the government on his shoulders. God has given us a, a risen, eternal king to make us into a church that is light, that does shine like stars in the darkness. He, he reaches into our lives to bring healing, to build us up. How? By giving us gifts through his King. And it's as we see what he's doing through his King and join in, that's when change by his Spirit begins to take root in his church. So, so what's, what is God doing through his King? That's the question. Well, firstly he's uniting us around our king he's uniting us around our king now i said god's people have been at war you can see that from 3 verse 1 there was a long war between the house of saul and the house of david we've seen we've seen saul killed uh, and ishbosheth taking over if you remember we had abner kill asahel the the brother of Joab, we've had twelve of both sides' finest young shoulders slaughter each other. We've had Joab take revenge on Abner, and then two Benjaminites uh, murdered uh, Ishbosheth. It's been brother against brother, a dark time of war and hatred. But with Abner and Ishbosheth dead, the resistance has really dried up. So five, verse one, then all, all. The tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd over my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Finally, Finally, after years of war, of bloodshed, peace comes. Israel, that's the north, make David their king just like Judah had in the south. We just need to feel this moment of relief. Rather than against each other, brothers are once again side by side. Rather than sons marching off to war, rather than mothers grieving and and children growing out, without their dad there is rest and peace farms may be worked again homes may celebrate again and it's all centered on david that's how peace arrives verse one all of israel come to him why they give a number of reasons he's he's one of them bone and flesh also he's a, a great leader uh, who's who's led them before even when saul was king and most importantly, he's the one chosen by God himself. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherds. So verse 3, they came to the king. They anointed him. David David could bring them together like no other. He could bring unity in a way that no other person could. He was of the family. He was a man who, who led with skill and had been, who'd led both north and south before. And he was the one chosen by God. This wasn't a democracy. A vote. This wasn't a hereditary monarchy either. David wasn't even related to Saul. No, this was God's people finally recognizing who God had chosen. This is how God brings unity amongst his people. It's through his chosen king. A king who is a close of the family, flesh and blood. Who knows what he's doing. Who's shown his love for all his people. And is chosen by God. Now, now, in the world and in the church, we can foolishly try and bring unity around other things and politics. We've seen we can do it around a person. We've seen it in the states. We've seen it in you know Rishi Sunak trying to bring unity to his party, or Nicola Sturgeon trying to bring unity uh, to Scotland. But but it's often around other things. It might be around a, a sports team, or an ideology, or an identity. I don't know, perhaps a unity around Aberdeen Football Club or around a certain sexuality. But these things don't have at their root God's King. And in the church, we, we've tried to often broker a unity with, that similarly misses God's person. I don't know, we, we perhaps choose a, a church minister. I'm with them, we say, and, and slowly put them as our saviour or we, we're united over a niche theological issue or, or make a denominational stand, but God is giving us something much deeper, something much more permanent. He's giving us unity around his chosen living king. He's uniting us around his, our king. We're united around Jesus and it's, and it's much deeper than just a shared identity or a shared interest. Why? Why? So we're bound to him in a covenant. He's bound himself to us in promises, in power. By his spirit, he's actually uniting us to himself. The Bible uses the phrase, in Christ. We're like budding great branches, in him the vine. Like being the body and him the head. Like us, a wife, and him the husband. Like stones of a building and him the cornerstone holding us together. There's nothing closer. We are unique individuals, fearfully and wonderfully made by God, but we're part of something bigger than ourselves because of Jesus binding us to himself. This is God's gift to us in Jesus. It's unity. It's unity around and in Jesus, our King. Now, yes, we have our own personal faith. I am saved as I trust in Him. But immediately, I am united to you, to my brothers and sisters. And it's what we long for as people. We long to be part of, of something, part of a community, a family. You know, if you're not here, a Christian here this morning, perhaps that's true of you. You know you've been reaching for community for belonging and yet wherever you've reached for you found it divisive and difficult i don't know you found the uh, the pub is only just a place of drinking and talking about drinking and nothing deeper or you found the cycling club it's fun but actually everyone's the same and they all head home afterwards and when you get an injury you've you've never heard of from them but in christ there's something much deeper There's a unity across divides. As we saw earlier, across nations, across nationalisms, across ethnicities, across sexes, across different shared interests, different sins and struggles, different loves and hates. We're united around our King. So may we, may we, God's church, know what we have here. This is God's gift to us. unity in His King. It's for our sake. Now, two things from this. Firstly, let's, Let's be people who embrace what God has given us. If we're united, let's be united. And it's something we're doing. I just loved the the church lunch a couple of weeks ago, seeing people who are so different to each other talk and share lives with each other. Let's keep going with that. Let's be people who who cross the world's divides in Christ, who share life with someone different, who speak to someone who doesn't look like you or dress like you. Learn, Learn from and listen to people who have different struggles and temptations. Let's be family. And secondly, knowing, knowing we have a unity here means we can head off to the, the cycling club or to the bridge club or home to your family or to a political party meeting, knowing that they can't provide what the church can. And that doesn't mean we don't bother, but instead so we can enjoy them as what they are. And we can be a light in them because we're not reaching for more in them. We're not trying to get them to unite us in a way they never can. Because they're not. In them isn't King Jesus. They're not the chosen son of God's. God's people. God's uniting us around our king. But he gives us more. He doesn't just give us unity. He gives us a home. Because secondly, he's centering us on our king's city. He's centering us on our king's city. Now King City, now in, in verse five the writer just throws in Jerusalem when he's talking about how long David has ruled for. And now the first readers of this would have known that Jerusalem was their current capital. And yet until now you may have noticed David's been in Hebron. But as we're going to see, Jerusalem is central to the Jewish people. Again, it's all centred around David. Now we see it emphasised twice. Jerusalem and the stronghold of Zion. Did you notice it's referred to as the city of David? That's what it's often called. So how does this capital city come about? Well, until this point, for some reason, the Jebusites lived in Jerusalem. Perhaps when when Joshua and the people of God were were meant to have cleared out the nations, clearly some got missed. The Jebusites were still right there in the centre of Israel. So here David is is finally reconquering the city. And David establishes the city against all the odds. He's very good at winning. Verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Now the Jebusites, they think their stronghold is impregnable undefeatable, so strong that, that even those who couldn't see or, or walk could hold it against David. You know, this is like, like trying to take Donata Castle on a stormy day. Okay, you just need a toy bow and arrow and you can keep the SAS at bay. But, but David, he's no ordinary leader. Verse 7, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. Now, David, it seems, found a route in via perhaps a water shaft of some sort. Now, now David isn't some callous man who hates the actual lame and blind. We're going to see that in a really clear example later on in 2 Samuel. Now, what he's doing here is just turning the joke back on them. If they think he's so weak, the lame and blind can defeat him. Well, he'll show them that they're pretty much other lame and blind, utterly useless against him. And once again... David is bringing peace. He's ridding uh, the the nation of its enemies. He's cleaning up the mess. But he's doing it here specifically in Jerusalem. He's creating a city of peace. A capital city, a place where soon God's ark will be put. We're going to see that next uh, week where a, a temple eventually will be built. He's establishing a center of gravity for his people. It's the city of David, the city of the king, Zion. And so it becomes something so much greater. This city takes on much greater significance than just the the piece of dusty land and the the large stone bricks placed in its walls. Jerusalem, or it's it's often called Mount Zion, becomes the place of God. It, It reaches into Israel's imagination as a place of hope. A place of peace. A place where God's people dwell in safety, in joy, in worship. A place where the nations are going to stream into. Where the new creation is going to flow out from. It's a place of righteousness and justice, of glory and of majesty. We see it loads in the Psalms. We sung about it in that first hymn. We see it in the prophets. It's the king's city. Now as a culture today, at first glance, I think places don't don't seem to take that kind of significance for us. I'm not sure Edinburgh or London or, or Stornoway hold that kind of emotional power for us. They might. But perhaps, perhaps for some of us, the word home does. A place where there's security, where we're known and loved, of, of home cooked food and laughter. Or perhaps slightly different place. I don't know, perhaps Petodry, or, or Murrayfield or Bannockburn or Stirling Bridge. P- places that speak of more than just what they're made of. They hold more in them. They signify more. They, they speak of hope. They speak of a change, perhaps a, a nostalgia of, once, once, of what was or a longing for a future that can be. The place, it, it kind of wraps itself in and around us. And these are just faint echoes, faint shadows of the real thing, our real home. Now, Jerusalem, that city in the Middle East, that was never the final destination. It was, it was pointing beyond itself to the heavenly Zion, the city of God, the place of God's people finally gathered together the new creation the place of purity, the place where enemies are banished, the place of worship and things made right, that longing we know, perhaps for home, for a, for a place, it's lifting our gaze to our final home. When heaven comes to earth, the new creation, the garden city with a, a river of life throwing through it, flowing through it, God is centering us on our king's city, this is God's gift to us in Jesus. It's a home. And once again, it's all centered on our king. We, we have this home because our king is there. Just like when we think of home, we think perhaps of parents or siblings. Home for our hearts is where our king is. Now, originally it was all about where David was. Verse 9, and David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. Verse 10, and David becomes greater and greater and greater. But now our home is where Jesus Christ is. The one who saved us. The one who guides us and shepherds us. The one who unites us and loves us. The one who's who's patient with us. The one who who gently brings us to himself. And it's a place where Jesus has defeated his enemies. Now David just got rid of the Jebusites. But but Jesus, he's getting rid of the devil, those who've persecuted his people, and the, the final enemies of sin and death. It's a place of purity, of peace, of no more crying or pain. We have been welcomed there by grace. The, the city of Zion, it's Jesus' city by rights and ours by grace. We should have been thrown out with the Jebusites. But somehow we've been welcomed in. God is centering us on our King's city. And so may our lives more and more reflect that place. As a, as a church, we're like an outpost of another nation. We're like an embassy in a foreign land. Yes, we might be Scottish or English, Ghanaian or Brazilian, but over and above that, we are citizens of heaven. Oh, may we reflect that city? May we be a people of of purity, getting rid of what doesn't belong—not people, but the sin in us. Now, the Jebusites—they mocked and laughed at God's people. May we, may we be a people where words of of malice and mocking, of jealousy and of pride, are left behind, they're banished. Why? Because that's what our home is like. A place of purity and of love. How are your words of others? What are you known for in the office or on the football pitch with your children or your parents? Spiteful, sharp put-downs, a traitor in gossip? Or a child of Zion? God has given us a home. He's centering us on our king's city. So he's uniting us around his king. He's centering us on our king's city. And lastly, he's exalting us in our king's glory. He's exalting us in our king's glory. Our passage this morning finishes with two signs of glory in two little comments. Firstly, verse 11, And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees. And also carpenters and masons who built David a house. Now this is the first sign of glory. This is the, the king of another nation bringing tribute and honor. He's sending his best resources, his most treasured possession, cedar trees. They're, they're grand, strong, a beautiful piece of wood for a grand and beautiful palace. This is a symbol of honor and respect to David. It's like the, the head of a state uh, of another country visiting you and bringing in a favorable trade deal or something. Or, or think of it like your fame spreading. It's like someone coming to your business and saying, you know, I've heard about you. You're the guy who did that great job. Let's talk. You know, h- hear Hiram Heard of David and he's honoring him. God, He's establishing and exalting David. Verse 12. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that He exalted His kingdom for the sake of His people Israel. I think it's God's even establishing him in the midst of David's sin. <coughs> Excuse me. In the, in the last few verses, we get another list of David's sons. We've had one before. Here's another. Now, at the root of this is sin, is it? People have, have always known from Genesis, marriage is between one man and one woman. And God, God had made it really explicit for, to kings that they have always been banned from taking many wives. Right back in Deuteronomy, it says that. And yet here in David, is David not only taking wives, but concubines as well. It's put, put first to emphasize it. But in God's kindness, David is having many children and many sons. Now, how's that, uh, in, how's that glorious? Well, his royal line, it's established, it's secure. Two signs of glory. Nations honoring David and his kingship secure. When, when God establishes his kingdom, it isn't one that fails. It isn't one that only exists in the record books. It isn't one of insignificance or obscurity. God's kingdom is one of glory, particularly through a glorious king. It, now, this is something God has made us for, glory. Humanity was was made on the final day of creation, the pinnacle of what He made. Only once we had been made was creation very good. We're made in the image of God Himself. We're, we're, we're made to know Him forever, ruling in creation in loving power. As David puts it in Psalm 8, he says, you've crowned mankind with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. It's glory. We revel in it. We we love it when our our team does well, when our nation succeeds, when a a child exceeds our expectations, when a parent gets a promotion. It it can lift our spirits. We can soar like, like eagles in the sky. We can't help but smile because we're people made for glory. And God gives it to us in his king. God gives us a glorious king, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus Christ has purified for himself a people from sin. He is the firstborn from the dead. He's the head over the church. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He, He has conquered his enemies and will unite all things together in himself. All nations are going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, bringing honor and tribute. His throne is one that is totally secure because he's always living. There is no one greater God has given us a glorious king. We are people with glory. Now people can spend their whole lives chasing for glory, fame, power. And they wanting to write the best book, score the best goal, rule over nation upon nation. But as God's people, we already have it. We have glory. This king we're united to, this, this city we're centered on, they're imbued with eternity. They're unshakable. You know, Revelation speaks of streets paved with gold, foundations of precious jewels, how we stretch for words and images. We have a king of light and love. God is exalting us in our king's glory. And you know what? This just frees us. This, this breaks the shackles on our lives, the rat race the fight for glory, the extreme highs when we win and the deep lows when we lose. We have glory in Christ already. So rather than pushing others down so that we might reach the top, we can lift others up because we already have. We can live lives of sacrifice in Christ because in Christ we already have lives of success. Just think of Jesus. He he did not search out the great cedar trees for his palace. Instead, he went to the scorned tree of the cross. Instead of the seat of honor served by others, he he stooped down and washed his disciples' feet as a slave. We exalt in Christ's glory by, by sacrificing our own. We can turn the other cheek when someone strikes us rather than taking revenge. When a relationship turns sour, we can quickly admit wrong rather than trying to hide our mistakes. We can praise God when someone else gets a job ahead of us. We can thank God for someone's greater godliness. We can enjoy the success of other churches and other ministries as as ours stays the same. In other words, our hearts can delight in others Why? Because God is exalting us in our King's glory. So that's what the church is. We're we're united around our King. We're centered on His city and we're exalting in His glory. This is how God is making us different. This is how God is making us into a people we want to be. A community of love and peace. A place where war is set aside and kindness prevails. He gives us a people place and glory itself now and into eternity and it's all a gift through jesus christ our shepherds we don't have to be self-sufficient we don't have to believe the lies that it's all down to to me fulfilling my dreams it's all in him if you've never come to christ this morning the sound of his kingdom his glory sounds incredible Can I urge you this morning to commit to him? He is a forgiving saviour and a gentle king. He's God's gift to us. Amen.